Welcome again to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Beth Hunter, Fiction Category Manager at Booktopia. And this podcast is part of a series of conversations we've been having uh, in celebration of Crime Month, which is the very imaginatively named extravaganza of all things crime and thriller at Booktopia. Um, It's something I'll tell you a little bit more about the end of the chat um, with one of its featured authors. Uh, It's hard to imagine crime and thriller fiction today without the indelible mark of Michael Robotham. He's Australia's own multi-million copy best-selling author whose work includes the Joseph O'Loughlin thrillers, uh, the CWA Gold Dagger winner Life or Death, as well as the TV-adapted psychological thriller The Secrets She Keeps. His latest novel, When She Was Good, is the second novel to feature the criminal psychologist Cyrus Haven, and I love it. Uh, Michael Robotham, Robotham joins me today over Skype Michael, welcome to the Booktopia podcast. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure. Um, how are you? How have you been getting on in lockdown life? Oh, look, I'm fine. I mean, my I've been self-isolating for 27 years, so <laughs> my wife keeps talking at me saying, this doesn't bother you at all, does it? You know, sure, she's sort of climbing the walls. I just, I wake up in the morning and I come out and I, uh, I make stuff up uh, and then I go back in again and... Um, I don't see anyone, which is what I've been doing for 27 years. So it hasn't really affected me. Although now that the new book's coming out, um, normally I would be touring and travelling extensively. And and that's when my life will change because that's not going to happen this year. Yeah, all sorts of changes um, and challenges. Um, let's talk about the new book. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of uh, repetition I, I read in, in people blurbing about your books and, and, and posting reviews. And it's always some version of, wow, this guy just keeps getting better. <laughs> and I, I read those blurbs and, and sometimes I would think, gosh, like Michael's written over a dozen novels. Is he really getting better? Or are we as invested fans just getting more and more excited for the upcoming novel? And and, and that emotional investment is, is creating a, a greater gratitude, a greater payoff when we read them. And they are indeed all great books. Um, but Michael, then I read my proof copy of When She Was Good, and I really do feel like you've turned it up a notch. So congratulations. It's one of the best thrillers I've ever read. Well, thank you, Ben. You know, it's an, it's an odd thing. Um, I think a crime writer is only really as good as their last book. Um, you know, there are, there are literary writers that can write a single novel and that will define their careers and they will forever be remembered for that particular book even if everything they write after what that is complete dross whereas i think crime writers you're only ever as good as your last one and to be honest i think there are quite a number of writers none of whom i'm going to name <laughs> who, <laughs> who i think do get to the point where people where readers do come and say yeah look i enjoyed it but it was a bit like the last one or or, or readers get a sense that they're sort of posting it in. They're just sort of, they've come up with a with a, a style and they just keep repeating it. Whereas I think what, I, look, I don't know the reason why people think I, I'm writing better books. I mean, I'm trying, but I think <laughs> I'm trying to write a better book each time. But I think one of the things, if there is a, if there is a reason for it, um, that I, I would identify would be that I never try to write the same book twice and it's why I've written books in different, you know, tenses and with first-person narratives and third-person narratives and female voices and male voices and and um, 
present tense and past tense and every time I'm trying to create something different and partly that's not just that's that's for me as much as the reader because I don't want to get bored and the moment I think that I'm writing the same book again or the moment that I feel as though readers are saying yeah well it's a bit like his last one you know um I want them to tap me on the shoulder and I'll say okay maybe it's time to pack it in you know maybe it's time to retire and um but while I can keep challenging myself to write something different and um then and do something different um i'll you know i i get excited when i come to my writing desk and hopefully the readers can see that my excitement transfers into something that's exciting to read yeah that's really well put i think in my, in my experience um authors will come to me and say this was the most challenging part of of, of the book for me to write and and it will always be the part that i've enjoyed the most as a reader um, the things that challenge you as an author or the things that excite you um, when you're having a great time um, at the desk powering away, um, it, it just shines in the book every time. Um, and so- I think actually the other thing I'll say is that I think, um, I mean, you know, you've got to challenge yourself. And, and I mean, for me, the greatest challenge of of When She Was Good, because it follows on from the first book in the series, um, uh, which was Good Girl, Bad Girl, was that I've never done I've never done a story that arches across two novels. And even though When She Was Good can be read as a standalone, you don't have to have read the first book, it is an, a story that runs across two books. And in a perfect world, I would have written both of those books um, in advance. So, But in fact, I wrote Good Girl, Bad Girl, which was published last year. And because I don't plot my books in advance, I had no idea how I was going to finish the story. And I planted clues in that first book, which I had to live with. I couldn't go back and change what was already in print, which was an enormous challenge uh, for me as a writer, because um, I had to I had to live with the clues that I'd created and solve the puzzle without knowing how it was going to end. Um, for, for listeners who haven't read either of the Cyrus Haven novels, um, do you want to give brief sort of summary or pitch that doesn't spoil the twists too much okay well i mean in in a sense it's the same pitch for both both books i mean um this is a story about evie cormack who it was a young girl who six years ago was found hiding in a secret room in a house where a man had been tortured and murdered um and nobody knew she was inside the walls when they discovered the body she wasn't found until weeks later and when they did find her, she was malnourished and showed signs of having been abused. And she refused to reveal her name or her age or how she got into that room. Uh, and so the courts gave her a new name and a new identity. They called her Evie Cormack. And both of these books start six years later, where she's now claiming to be 18 and wanting to be released from a children's home. And my forensic psychologist, Cyrus Haven, is sent to interview her in Good Girl, Bad Girl, to decide if she's ready to be released into the world. Um, and I guess that's good girl, bad girl. That's part of that story. And you never really, you discover a lot of things in that book about Evie Cormack, but you never discover who put her in that room and why she was there. You have to wait until when she was good, the new book, to learn the answers to those questions. And I guess the thrust of the story is that Cyrus believes the only way he can help this very damaged, this self-destructive, this mercurial sort of figure of Evie Cormack is if he finds out the truth about her identity. 
But the more and the closer he gets to uncovering who she is, um, there's a reason she hasn't revealed who she is. There's a reason she's been hiding. And the closer he gets to discovering who she is, the closer those people who are looking for her are getting to finding Evie. Yes, it's a, it's a fantastic tension between Evie and Cyrus throughout the novel. Um, you know, Cyrus wants the truth um, and thinks the truth is, is, is the, 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 the sort of the value um, with which to strive towards to solve every issue. Um, but Evie is, is working against him. Um, and she, she always has a polar opposite worldview. Um, well, she knows, I mean, because basically she's tried to explain to him everyone she has ever loved has died and everyone that has ever gone searching for the truth has died. And so she realises how vulnerable she is. And But as much as she tries to tell him, you do not go looking, you know, he thinks this is the only thing that will free her. And um, and he triggers a tripwire. And, um, and there are powerful, powerful, powerful people who, you know, for Evie, Evie to them is the last witness to their appalling crimes. And if they find her and destroy her, they can get away with it. And and Cyrus doesn't realise this. Evie has tried to explain it, but uh, he just doesn't realise. He stumbles from one thing to another. I mean, he, with the best possible intentions, he's, he's her only friend. Mm. doesn't realise what danger he's putting them both in. And, and Evie also has this um, brilliant ability um, to, uh, to know when someone is lying um, almost uh, perfectly every time. Uh, which is just a fascinating trait, and that's that's um, that that comes from real psychological research, doesn't it? Yeah, it does in a sense. I mean, there are people who um, have a heightened ability to tell when someone is lying, um, and I think when I, you know, they're they're sometimes called truth wizards, um, mm. and a lot of them have training. They've spent years working in careers like the prison service or. Uh, child services where they're lied to every day and they develop an ability to tell when they're being lied to. Um, but the best of them is about 80%, have an 80% ability. Uh, Evie's ability is greater than that. And her ability comes from the fact that she has been so terribly abused that she has learned, she has learned to pick up on those tiny telltale clues because she's had to do it to survive, you know, whether, whether she's going to be hit or hugged in a split second, she can tell whether someone's a danger to her or not. Um, but it's an interesting, I mean, she's a fa- she's probably, oh no, probably I think she's the most exciting character I've ever written. Um, uh, and on the one hand, you know, it's, it's a risk to write a crime novel in which a major character can tell when someone's lying because, you know, you're on track to write the shortest crime novel in history. Um, but I, I, I sort of fixed that by making a such a compulsive liar and so damaged and so uncontrollable that nobody believes her when Evie, when Evie does tell the truth um, because she lies so often. Um, but no, and she, she stems from um, a complete fascination I have had for probably 20 years with, um, with lying, you know, and, and, and the psychology behind lying and why we do it. Tell me about um, how you research that aspect of uh, your fiction. I mean, you don't have a tertiary education in criminal psychology that I'm aware of. Um, so uh, what do you uh, 
how do you approach the research and, and what do you go looking for? Well, I guess the research into a character like, because this novel, the novel Good um, Good Girl, Bad Girl and When She Was Good and, and have got the dual narrators. Evie narrates one chapter and Cyrus uh, narrates um, the next and they sort of, the story is told through both their eyes. From the point of view of a psychologist, I, I worked for many years as a journalist and then as a ghostwriter with a, and a man called Paul Britton, who is the was the pioneer of offender profiling in Britain. He was a clinical psychologist and he was he was the real life psychologist that Cracker was based upon, that amazing BBC series of probably 20, 25 years ago now starring Robbie Coltrane um, playing a criminal psychologist. And so Paul Britton in real life worked on amazing cases like Rachel Nickell and Fred and Rosemary West and Jamie Bolger. And, and I guess so my knowledge of psychology comes from my work with him and having done two books with Paul. Um, when it comes to lying, you know, uh, I became fascinated. Actually, it stems from a book that I read many, many years ago, quite a famous book um, called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. It was uh, quite a famous neurologist. And uh, he tells us he told a story about walking through um, a particular hospital and there were all these uh, aphasia patients there. And uh, aphasia patients are people that have um, they cannot put a, a name to things. They know what it is. It's a bit like they've suffered brain damage. So you could show them a pair of scissors and in their head they know what's a pair of scissors, but they can't name it. They can't tell you that it's called a pair of scissors, but they know it. But uh, they were watching Ronald Reagan giving evidence and uh, or making a speech on TV, these aphasia patients, and they were laughing while he was giving this speech. And when Oliver Sacks asked them, why are you laughing? And they said, well, he's lying. Now, these, these patients had no idea what Ronald Reagan was talking about, you know, um, but they knew he was lying because they were picking up on these incredible sort of clues, physical, phys visible, you know, tiny little tells. They're called micro expressions. Um, and that's where my first fascination came from. And then I began to work, uh, read the work of Professor Paul Ekman, who is probably the world's leading expert on lying. And he has written a lot about these micro expressions. I mean, some of them are only a 20th of a second long. But you can't hide. That's why you can't hide from them. Someone can smile on their face and appear incredibly genuine. But somewhere around the eyes, there will be this absolute tiny micro expression, which will reveal something very different. That's fascinating. Um, tell me a bit about um, creating the character of Cyrus Haven. Um, what makes him tick? And um, how do you relate to him as opposed to um, your longstanding psychologist character, um, Joseph O'Loughlin? Well, I guess Joe O'Loughlin was closer in age to me and um, he had daughters. I've got three daughters. Joe O'Loughlin had two daughters. Um, I guess in many ways he was um, he was the most autobiographical character that I've written. We had very similar outlooks on life. He was far cleverer than I am. He was far braver than I am. A bit of wish fulfillment there. Um, um, Cyrus is younger. He's only in his early 30s. He's quite... He's got a quite a tragic backstory. He he survived a family massacre that saw both his parents and his twin sisters killed when he was only 13 years old. He came home from football practice and found their bodies. And everyone assumes that's the reason he became a psychologist. And maybe it is. That's partly it. Uh, maybe it's something more. Um, I haven't decided that yet. Uh, 
but he's a younger um, he's a younger Joe Lachlan in a sense. He doesn't have the debilitating sort of uh, disease of Parkinson's, um, but he is burdened by these ghosts that haunt him about what happened to his family. And I think um, I think one of the beautiful things about the relationship between Ian and Evie is that Evie has got every reason never to trust a man, given what's been done to her in her short life. She has no reason to ever, ever trust a man, ever. And Cyrus comes into her life, and I think the moment the moment of truth comes when she realised that maybe this man is even more damaged than she is, and it might not just be a case that he's trying to save her, perhaps she can save him. Mm. It's, a, it's a fantastic dynamic they have. Um, tell me, um, you've had uh, a big successful career as an author, um, but you've never had to launch a book during a world pandemic um, with all its associated travel and social restrictions. Um, how the heck are you going to manage that, Michael? And um, what have been some of the strange and unforeseen events in touring and promoting other novels you've had over the years? Oh, I have so many stories about touring books. I mean, um, all writers have them. We get together and people wonder what writers talk about. And apart from talking about the craft, we normally try to one-up each other on stories about disastrous uh, events we've had. You know, I remember um, chatting to Ian Rankin once and telling him that I turned up in San Diego and there were 50 chairs set out and only three people turned up thinking, I mean, he was going to feel sorry for me. And he looked at me and said, three. I said, yeah. He said, I got one. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so everyone sort of has stories. Um, they're called their mortifying moments uh, about touring. Um, there are also some wonderful, wonderful moments. I remember being, I remember turning up in Germany on a tour and having people waiting, fans waiting at my hotel for me. And then I went and did an event in um in Cologne and there were 700 people in the audience and they queued for an hour and a half in the snow to get a book signed and and I got a little inkling what, what it was like to be a complete rock star um till I get home of course and my wife puts my feet back on the ground but um yeah I think I mean there are sort of you, you get that mixture of sort of particularly in the early days you have the mortifying moments um I think one of the great benefits of being a writer now, and it can be a downside, but um, you know, back in the back in the dark ages, and I've been writing for a lot of years now. Um, really, you you didn't get much feedback until you went out touring or went to a writers' festival. You didn't really get to communicate with the readers, and occasionally they wrote you letters, and invariably they went via the publishers these letters, and the publishers would have gone through them and taken out the really poisonous ones, and only sent you the herograms. Right. Uh, now through social media, you're getting you're getting everything. You're getting feedback through Twitter and Facebook and whatever every day. Um, and the vast majority of that is very positive and uplifting and and moving. Um, but there's a percentage of it which is toxic, and and you simply have to um, try to ignore that and um, and not let it get you down. Um, Absolutely. I um I, I really enjoy reading some of the very strange one star reviews on on Booktopia, <laughs> <laughs> um, particularly for novels that I love and and that are widely acclaimed. You know, this yeah, a lot of so many readers will just um yeah. uh, will miss it, and you feel sorry for them for you know not enjoying a book that you've you've loved so much. But it's often very entertaining to see how they, 
And to a degree, it's funny. I mean, I know it, it's changed a little bit with um, with other sort of review sites where at least now there have to be verified purchases to leave reviews. Um, but even then, occasionally you come across you'll you'll come across uh, you know a one star review, and you'll look and find it's the only review of any book that this account has ever posted. Mm. A little part of you then wonders: Has someone gone to that effort of of creating an account just to post a one star review, or is it something you know? Um, is it something more sinister than that? You know, um, and. Um, you know, in terms of people trying to, I mean, I remember, you know, a few years ago now, my first, before you needed to have a verified purchase, I mean, my, my first five reviews on a site were one star and the book didn't come out yet for another two weeks. And I, and I kept thinking, how could I have five one star reviews when they haven't read the book? And it was all about people being upset about the price they were going to have to pay when the book did oh. come and they decided to give me one star based on the price, which um, I remember ringing up friends of mine, pleading with them, listen, when you do read the book, can you post a review? Because at the moment I'm averaging one star for my book. <laughs> I'd like to lift it off one star if I could. <laughs> oh, I'll be sure to go and put a review in. I'll, I'll be generous. <laughs> um, uh, there's a six-part TV adaptation of one of your standalone novels, uh, The Secret She Keeps. Um, it's aired on Channel 10 and can be watched now on uh, 10 play um, in Australia. Um, is it the first book you've had adapted for screen? And, and what was the experience um, for that? It's not the first book I've had adapted. Um, uh, in a sense, one of the first ghostwritten books I ever did was a book called Empty Cradles that got turned into a film quite a few years ago now called Oranges and Sunshine about the child migrant uh, child migrants that were sent to Australia. Um, that was a non-fiction book. And, and the Germans have turned seven of the Joe Lachlan books into or six of the Joe Lockham books so far into into sort of movies or telemovies. Um, wow, I didn't but know that. I, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, but I, I could, obviously couldn't have anything to do with those because it was all they're all in German. I've only ever watched one of them. Um, you know, uh, I actually sat at a at a world premiere in a in a cinema in Hamburg with the cast and directors and walked the red carpet. And I was the only person in the audience who couldn't understand a word of what was going on um, because there were no English subtitles provided just for me. So I just watched the whole thing in German, um, uh, which is an interesting exercise. Yeah. Um, but this one is interesting because The Secret Chick Keeps had a couple of, um, couple of offers, including a, a big UK, very successful UK company wanted um, to buy the rights. And... And I'm really pleased I went for an Australian company, uh, Lingo Pictures, who are, are wonderful. Um, they did uh, Lambs of God and Wake in Fright, and um, they've done some wonderful, wonderful dramas. And uh, and one of the reasons I chose them was because I would have the opportunity to actually be in the story room, be in the writer's room, um, storyboard, and, and obviously go on set, um, all of which I managed to do. And I... Um, I loved the storyboarding. I loved uh, working with the writers. Um, I found the filming incredibly boring, uh, um, only because they, I mean, all of the actors who could just shoot the same scene, you know, 18 times and and maintain their level of emotion and and um, through every single take. Uh, but it did teach me why, it did actually convince me that um, I'm quite happy that I'm a novelist because, and I came to realise that as as a novelist, I am technically God. 
and I, you know, I have control over all things. Um, you know, I have editors that might suggest things, but ultimately it's my decision. Whereas when you get involved in TV and film, you know, you get network notes and distributor notes and producer notes and director's notes and actor's notes and you yeah, have a lot to, of fingers in the pie. Oh, yeah. But I think I'm saying that I did a tremendous job um, with the drama, which did very well. And it's just it's just finished screening on the BBC in the UK. It's the first Australian drama to screen in prime time on BBC One in history. Um, Congratulations. And it pulled in, I think it got 3.2 million people on its first night. And it was the top trending in the top 10 most trending topics on Twitter. And so it's um, it's done very well. I mean, I think it's very commercial. It's very fast. It's um, it's like one of those um, I, I put it in in the same sort of category as something like, you know, Big Little Lies and, and the drama there that it's just um, it's uh, it's commercial, but quality um, and, you know, you can't help but binge it. Mm. Um, I mentioned at the top of the podcast that uh, we're celebrating Crime Month at Booktopia um, and you've been kind enough to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard and give us a list of crime books that uh, you've particularly enjoyed or have had an impact on your writing and you've picked some cracker books Michael um, some of which I've read and adored and, and some have been on my um, to read list for a long time I'm ashamed to have never have read them um, we're publishing your recommendations on the blog, and I encourage listeners to uh, head over and have a sticky beak. Um, some of your picks are not primarily classified as crime fiction. Um, some are positioned more as literary or historical fiction. Um, Hannah Kent, for example, has burial rights, um, uh, which has all of the elements of a great mystery, um, but obviously it's it's not pitched that way. Um, what is it that you like about Hannah Kent? I think I find that's an interesting point you make about the way it's so much of it the way things are pitched. You know, um, you know, it's interesting. It's like I remember back when uh, Peter Temple, you know, the, the late great Peter Temple, wrote Truth and the Broken Shore that his publishers made at um, text publishing made a concerted effort not to put a really commercial cover on the book, but to put a literary style of cover to pitch it as literary fiction, and mm. it went on to win. The Miles Franklin and, you know, so many elements. I mean, again, this goes back to, you know, the demarcation. Where is the demarcation line between, you know, genre fiction and literary fiction? Because there are crime writers who can whose books can sit alongside the very best of, of, of literary writers um, um, who are writing, you know, and who are writing an astonishing level. And Hannah's a classic example. I mean, burial rights is a wonderful mystery it's suspenseful it's atmospheric i mean it's got a tremendous sense of place i mean you've, it fills you with dread you know um it's got all those wonderful elements that we love in crime fiction but it's a beautiful literary novel and um and i guess if i i mean i, I aspire to write something um that is that, that straddles those worlds, if you know what I mean. And I think there are the, a lot of the examples I've given, books like Smiller's Feeling for Snow, and there are others like Snow Falling on Cedars or or um, The Constant Gardener by uh, John le Carre. I mean, these are all beautifully crafted books, but they, you know, you could call them crime novels, you can call them mystery novels, but they're just great novels. 
What about Peter Temple? Uh, you pay tribute to his work. Um, uh, for readers who haven't discovered him yet, uh, where do you recommend they start? Oh, look, I think, you know, if you want... I mean, the Jack Irish books are enormous fun, you know, in terms of they're full of such humour. And, and I mean, Peter Temple has has the greatest descriptive turn of phrase ever. You know, he just, he can sum, on a, sum up a character in a paragraph that just makes you smile. Um, and um, and he's also probably the master of capturing um, the Australian dialogue or turn of phrase of, of, of what the way Australians talk to each other. He's got mm. a, a brilliant ear for dialogue. Um, but those books are easier reads. I mean, I think I think personally that The Broken Shore should have won the Miles Franklin. And in truth, while I think it's a tremendous book, it, I feel as though it's not as good a book as The Broken Shore. Um, uh, they're both brilliant, don't get me wrong, but I think The Broken Shore um, is the great, that is the best book that Peter it's sad that he's not around to write anymore, but to me, that's the best book he ever wrote. Yeah, it, it's an eclectic list, but it's also um, a real who's who. Um, you got Carl McDermott, you got John Macari, um, Gillian Flynn. Um, I'm wondering, uh, what did you grow up reading or, or even watching that got you excited about the whole genre um, before your writing career even began? I, I'm, I'm not a crime reader uh, and wasn't when I was growing up. Um, I'm an accidental accidental crime writer. I didn't realise I was writing a crime novel when my first novel, The Suspect, um, triggered a bidding war at the London Book Fair in 2002. Um, I knew it, it, there was a mystery at the centre of it, but it was more, I suppose, I was looking for something more along the lines of an Alfred Hitchcock type drama of, you know, a wrong man, wrong place, wrong time, you know, um, type story. Uh, and um, I mean, when I was growing up, I, I mean, I, I, like a lot of teenage boys, I binged on fantasy. I mean, I was a huge Tolkien fan and, um, you know, I must have read Lord of the Rings about a dozen times and mm. still have a dog-eared copy, which is my most treasured book because my local school librarian got so fed up with me borrowing this book. And when she forbade me borrowing it again, I took to hiding it in the library so that I could sneak in and read it at lunchtime. And when she caught me, because I didn't want anyone else to borrow it, uh, and so when she caught me, I, instead of punishing me, she gave me the book. And um, it's held together with gaffer tape, literally with gaffer tape, this book. Um, but it's my most precious book because it's the first book uh, I feel as though I earned, you know. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I I grew up, I grew up reading that sort of stuff, and then um, then I discovered, you know, I just I loved the Great America. I, I didn't like the the text we I was taught at school, the the you know um, Sons and Love, D. H. Lawrence or Austin. I, I love Austin a lot more now, but I love the American writers, Hemingway, Faulkner, Steinbeck. Um, I loved uh, I loved the because I felt as though they were far more. There was far more action, far more stuff happened, you know. Um, and that was far more adventurous, really. Um, thank you so much for um, being generous with your time today, Michael. Um, last thing I want to ask is, um, what are you working on next? Um, I am I am putting Evie and Cyrus aside for one book. I will be going back to to, to them and and doing another book, a third book in the series. But I'm writing a standalone, um, which I'm I I do every so often. And this one features as the story of a young a young policewoman um, 
Philomena McCarthy, or Phil, people call her, who uh, rescues a woman from a domestic violence situation and um, and uh, and creates an infatuation story. So it's sort of uh, you know it's early days, but um, it's a story about it's a story about toxic friendships really, and and how toxic they can be. Sounds delicious. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Ben. When She Was Good is published by Shet and is featured in Crime Month at Booktopia. Um, it's one of a great collection of handpicked favourites uh, for which we've applied extra discount over the whole month of July. Um, and Aussie residents who water When She Was Good or any of those featured picks by July 31 will be in the running to win the Ultimate Sleuth Pack, which is over $800 worth of new books. Um, to shop those picks, as well as um, some guest-curated selections from the likes of Devil McTiernan, Christian White, Chris Hammer, and Michael Robotham, go to booktopia.com.au today. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free, and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.